Uh, let me pray and then we're going to, I'm going to ask you a question just to help us to think about this subject tonight. Heavenly Father, we've just been singing about the song of our life wanting to be, to live for the praise of your glory. And I pray as we look at this passage of scripture that shows us some of the words of the Lord Jesus as he sent out his disciples. And as we look at these three men who inspire us to live for you as Lord and Savior. Please would you teach us, would you rebuke us, would you train us in righteousness that we might be better equipped to live for you in the week ahead. Amen. Okay, I'd like you to think um, what it is that inspires you. Who inspires you? Where have you been that has inspired you? could be anything. Uh, a faith-related theological inspiration or otherwise. But think of a person who inspires you, maybe. Perhaps a parent or a grandparent or someone you've seen on the news or in a film. Maybe you're inspired by an attitude you've seen in someone else. The patient long-suffering of someone, maybe. Uh, maybe for those who are more cultured, it would be a picture or a piece of music, something you play in your home, you have up on the wall. And when you look at it, it inspires you. It reminds you of a place or an experience, but that inspires you. Uh, maybe it's a memory, a distant memory, a, a more recent memory. Maybe it's a quote. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from the uh, missionary and martyr to the Orca tribe in South America, a guy called Jim Elliott, who famously said, he is, no, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Sometimes quotes like that sort of arrest us and they inspire us. But just in your mind, picture whatever it is that inspires you and think about why it inspires you. Because things that inspire us often will um, stimulate us to action. They're the things that we often draw upon when life is difficult. Perhaps when we need some inspiration, we need um, some direction. Often when we're suffering or under pressure, it's the people, the experiences, the things in life that inspire us that keep us going. And you'll be able to think of whoever it is who has inspired you. And I'm, no doubt they've encouraged you to keep going through difficult times. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 10, and particularly as we look at the Oxford Martyrs, I hope and pray that they may be a fresh inspiration to you, an inspiration of people who were prepared to give up everything for following Jesus, people who both knew the, the truths that they knew, but felt them in their hearts and were prepared to respond in their actions. And because they're local people, or were local people, perhaps they'll have um, a bit more influence on us. But come to Matthew chapter 10 before we think about them. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 8, which really present the context for some following verses, which we're going to dip into, where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to proclaim the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill. Raise the dead. 
Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. So essentially, in a nutshell, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is they are to go out into the wilderness, into the countryside around Jerusalem. And they are to declare the kingdom of heaven. And by declaring the kingdom of heaven, they're declaring that there is a king who rules this earth. They're declaring that Jesus Christ has come. And really what they're doing is they're inspiring a new worldview. People are waiting for their Messiah. The Jews are waiting for their Messiah. But the sort of Messiah they're waiting for is not the Messiah who ends up coming. They're waiting for a conquering king who's going to liberate them from the Romans. They haven't understood that they're going to have a king who comes as a suffering servant to give up his life as a ransom for many. But this worldview that the disciples are taking out, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven has come, in part is meant to inspire people and get people thinking, what is it that I live for? And they're going to face a great deal of opposition. You just have to go back a few chapters in Matthew's Gospel to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. And Jesus is really provocative when he paints pictures of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like he turns on its head the values of our world. He says, this is where true liberation comes from. This is where true hope comes from. This is what the true people of God who know me will look like and live like. And it's hugely provocative because all the values of the world are turned on their head when Jesus speaks. And it's no different here when he sends out the disciples. And I think Matthew chapter 10 is one of the passages in the Bible which I would uh, call a seatbelt passage. You kind of need to put on your seatbelt before you read it because it's arresting, it's challenging. And there are probably no more challenging words anywhere in the Bible than some of the words we're going to have a look at together now. Have a look down to verse 16. As he sends out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Look what he says. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. This is just a bunch of pretty ordinary men. And this is one of the first things that Jesus says to them when he sends them out. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. What he's saying is that you're going to face hostility as you proclaim the kingdom of heaven. As you increasingly live for the king who has come to die for you. You're going to face opposition. And really, there's very little you can do to protect yourself other than the protection that the shepherd will give you. I wonder if you ever feel like a sheep amongst the wolves. Uh, We perhaps often don't yet in this country in the way we might in decades to come, but there are plenty of Christians around the world for whom this description would be very daily reality. Where to proclaim the name of Jesus costs them absolutely everything. And then notice what he says, the second half of verse 16. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. There's different descriptions of uh, the serpent or a serpent in in the Bible. But in some places at least, uh, the snakes are described as uh, being cunning or being prudent. So I think here where Jesus says to his disciples, be as shrewd as snakes. What he's saying is, don't be gullible. Have a bit of nouse. You're going out into a hostile world. It's going to be difficult. Don't be naive. Don't be naive about the opposition you're going to face. Be prudent. But on the other hand, he says, but also be innocent as doves. The dove is a picture of purity. Go out, you're going to face opposition, but don't respond to that opposition like rogues. Be pure, be godly. Honor me. And there's this lovely balance then. Don't be gullible, don't be stupid, but be godly, be pure. As one commentator put it, be like a cunning snake, but without the venom. You and I need to face opposition 
with cunning. We need to be prudent, but we mustn't face it with the venom of the world. We need to face it with the grace of God. And that is what Jesus is speaking of here. But then notice a bit further on, verses 34 to 35. These are pretty divisive words. Jesus says, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. I'm sure that gets you thinking. At Christmas time, don't we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ being the Prince of Peace? Then we hear just a few chapters earlier in Matthew's Gospel, blessed are the peacemakers in the Beatitudes. So what's going on here where Jesus seems to be saying something completely different? Blessed are the peacemakers, but then he says, but I've come not to bring peace. doesn't make any sense. Well, the sword can represent all sorts of things in the Bible. Often it represents death or judgment. But here, the sword is speaking of division. What Jesus is saying is, I've not come to bring peace to the earth in the sense that I have come to bring division. In other words, when the kingdom of heaven is is proclaimed, it will always cause division. Some will respond positively, some will not respond positively. It's just a theological reality, a spiritual reality. And Jesus is warning his disciples, that is what he's come to do, to bring division. But they're very stark words, aren't they? And then he goes on to say, I have come in the sense of, it will be inevitable because there is division that a man will turn against his father that a daughter against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law a man's enemies will be the members of his own household Jesus isn't wishing this would happen but he's just making a statement saying I've come and the, uh, the message that's going to be proclaimed about who I am and the sort of saviour that I am will cause division and here's the reality sometimes that division will cut right through those relationships that are closest to us And I'm just looking across at some of you here. I know a little of some of the pressures that some of you face in families where some follow and love the Lord Jesus and some don't. And it's painful, isn't it? Really painful. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. But Jesus isn't doing this without compassion. He knows himself that many people rejected him. If you just flick on to chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 57... We read these words speaking of Jesus when he's amongst his own family and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. See, Jesus knew what it was like for his own family to take offense at him. So if you are living in a family where being a Christian is tough, Jesus knows how it feels because he was rejected by his own family, let alone his people. But these are challenging words, aren't they? And what Jesus is really getting at is saying, yes, he's come into the world to bring ultimate peace, reconciliation with God through the cross. But that doesn't bypass conflict because there is only one way to heaven. There's only one way to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. There's these exclusive claims that only Jesus Christ makes and we have to wrestle with them. And the reality is it will divide. Uh, And Jesus told other parables, didn't he? Like the parable of the sheep and the goats, which teach these difficult truths as well. We have to wrestle with them because they're painful. But really, we're getting to a question of ultimate allegiance. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And who is going to be Lord of our life? And come on to verse 37 to 39. Again, these words might arrest our heart a little. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he doesn't say that because your mother or your father is not lovable, not deeply lovable. But he says because he is more lovable. Whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then these familiar words, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that word find there in verse 39 is really speaking of he or she who seeks to gain life. In other words, live now for self will end up losing it. But whoever surrenders self now will end up gaining it. It's this countercultural worldview of Jesus where he's saying your life is about giving up your life as you follow your savior who gave up his life for you. Now these are, these are challenging words, aren't they? But they do speak right into the heart of what Christian discipleship is like. And they're words I'm sure that some of the reformers would have reflected on because as we're going to see now, these three men that we're going to look at tonight gave up everything to follow Jesus. And they had to count the cost. And no doubt they would have read these words in Matthew's Gospel, along with many other parts of the Scriptures. And it was these words and others that would have inspired them to make the stands that they made. So we're going to journey together and look at three of the characters. First of all, do you remember this guy last week, uh, William Tyndale? Remember William Tyndale, who was passionate, having seen Luther come to faith through reading the Scriptures, was passionate about getting the Scriptures into everyday hands. And so he said one day, speaking to some clergy man, he said one day the boy who drives the plough will know these scriptures better than you. That was his conviction. And do you remember, he was the man who helped smuggle 16,000 English Bibles into England at the time. Can anyone remember who the King of England was at the time? Henry VIII, brilliant. Henry VIII. And at the time, Henry VIII was opposing him. And do you remember, as he's burned at the stake, William Tyndale, in 1536, his final words. Anyone remember? Lord, open, brilliant, open the eyes of the King of England. And we learned, didn't we, that that prayer was wonderfully answered two years later when Henry VIII changed his attitude and made it a law that there had to be an English Bible placed in every pew in every Anglican church up and down the country. What an amazing turnaround. Well, after William Tyndale, where we were last week, you had this guy, uh, Edward VI, and he was an evangelical king. He ruled for six years. He was a great king, and he was a Christian. But after him came Mary I, and everything changed. She was a staunch Roman Catholic. Mary I was known as Bloody Mary, and she started a systematic attack on the evangelical faith in the UK particularly. And she wanted to wipe out these evangelicals. And two of them that we're going to learn about, who were the Oxford Martyrs, One is Nicholas Ridley, the other is Hugo Latimer. Now, Nicholas Ridley was the Bishop of London, and he had been chaplain to Henry VIII. Ridley was, in many ways, a kind of scholar. His influence and the way that God used him was kind of working amongst those higher up in society, particularly those working close to the king. And Nicholas Ridley had deep, deep convictions of some of the words that we've read in Matthew's Gospel. The other guy was Hugo Latimer. He was more of a preacher. He was a really influential preacher. And one of the things he was most famed for was taking people in his preaching and helping them to recognize, listen, religion is not about what I do. It's not just about outward observance of going to church, sharing in the Lord's Supper, giving alms to the poor. Religion is about my heart and about my relationship with God. And he preached to the masses, and he was really well known for preaching to the uninfluential people, to the lower classes. So here you've got two men who, in many ways, were influencing society in very different ways. The upper echelons of society, and some of the peasants and the lower down people. 
But these two men were two of the targets of Mary I. And they were arrested and taken to Bacardo Prison in Oxford to face interrogation over their theological beliefs. Well, Hugo Latimer, who was the Bishop of Worcester, uh, wrote this probably to some of his churches or some of his friends. Because you be God's sheep, prepare yourselves to the slaughter, always knowing that in the sight of God our death is precious. Die once we must, how and where we know not. Happy are they that God giveth to pay nature's debt, I mean to die for his sake. Here is not our home, let us therefore accordingly have always before our eyes that heavenly Jerusalem and the way thereto in persecution. Now, it's slightly difficult English, it's 16th century, but I hope you get the gist. Just notice three things as you look at that quote. This is a reflection of Latimer's heart. You be God's sheep, he says. If we're going to stand against persecution, if we're going to stay faithful to the gospel in the 21st century, in our situation, one of the first things that perhaps is most crucial for you and I is that we know who we are in Christ. We know who we belong to. It's hugely, hugely important that we have strong identities in Jesus. And for these men, it was their identity in Christ and who he declared them to be that was one of the things that kept them going when they were scattered and life got difficult. You be God's sheep was Latimer's way of saying to the people, know who you belong to. Know who you belong to and have confidence in him. Then he goes on and says, and die for his sake. Now, why in the world would you want to give up anything, let alone your life, for his sake? Unless you've understood what he's first done for you. And this is where we have to keep the gospel central in our life. And as we looked at last week, keep speaking the gospel to one another. Keep reflecting on the gospel. Keep singing the gospel. Keep praying the gospel. Because we'll never live for Jesus' sake, let alone die for his sake, unless we continually hold at the front of our minds our Lord and Saviour who gave up everything for us. And the more that we look at the cross of Christ and remember how much he has done for us, the more we'll be inspired by his help and grace to live for him. And then maybe the thing that perhaps is maybe most provocative for us here, maybe quite challenging, but he says in that quote, doesn't he, here is not our home. It's so easy, isn't it, to get so consumed with the culture around us and we just get comfortable. One of the things that really sets the reformers apart is their deep, deep, deep held conviction that this life is not all there is. That this world is not our home and one day we'll be taken to a better place. The new heavens and the new earth. This world transformed, restored, remade. And therefore for them, losing their life was not the end. Because they had confidence in one who had beaten death. And as you read this quote from Latimer, does it not reflect the heart of the Apostle Paul? Think of the book of Philippians. Paul is in prison himself when he writes his letter to the Philippians. And he says very similar words, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What's he saying? He says, Whilst I live, my life is about Jesus Christ, about pleasing him, honoring him, putting him first. And when I die, it's gain because I get to be with him for all of eternity. That is the conviction of a man who knew that this world was not his home. Uh, Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. They're wonderful words, aren't they? Everything a loss compared to 
It's not saying everything else that I put to one side is not important, has no value. It just says in comparison to knowing Christ, there's nothing. He's more glorious, more amazing, more heart transforming than anything we'll ever find anywhere in the world. I think often we seek for joy in life and don't recognize that joy isn't the absence of hardship. That's happiness. And often life is not happy. Joy is being in positions of hardship but still knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the security that that relationship brings. That is why, interestingly, in the book of Philippians that's full of suffering and Paul's situation himself when he writes it is that of suffering is one of the rare letters of the New Testament that is so flooded with joy because he's trying to say joy and happiness are two very different things. And though you may not have happiness in this life, you can know joy because you know Christ. And then he goes on, Paul, in Philippians 3 verse 20 to say... Our citizenship is in heaven. That is where we belong. That is where we will one day be if we trust in him. And they're wonderful truths which are hard to grasp, aren't they? Because at the end of the day, yes, I know I'm going to heaven. I know my future is secure because I'm trusting in Christ. But sometimes it just feels far, far away, doesn't it? It feels so removed from my situation. And that's why we have to keep reading the Bible and keep reminding us of these truths to keep us going faithfully. Well, let's return to our friends Ridley and Latimer, because in 1555, on the 16th of October, so really just a week ago, 500 years ago, as it were, Ridley, age 80, and Hugo Latimer, age 78. Isn't that a wonderful example when I tell you what happened to them? These were old men who were standing firm for Jesus in their older years and setting an example of all of us who are far younger But they were taken to Broad Street, ready to be burned, and the wood was piled around them. Uh, Ridley, unfortunately for him, had newer wood piled around him, and it was smoldering and burning more slowly. Um, For Latimer, he was dying more quickly. But Ridley, in agony, because the smoldering um, wood wasn't burning him quickly, and it was a pretty painful death, cried out in agony, I cannot burn. Lord, have mercy on me. And in that moment then, his friend Latimer, who was dying more quickly, turned to him. And these are the famous words that you might have heard before. I can't really understand how he was able to say these words. But he declared, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. And they're hardly the words to declare to a burning man. But just imagine in that moment, the gospel had so captivated his heart. He declared to this friend of his who was burning alive, be of comfort, Master Ridley and play the man for we shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The irony is Mary I was trying to crush the Reformation, crush biblical truth by burning the reformers. And yet they believe that in a sense their burning bodies would be candles that would inspire a new generation to stand up for what is true and keep going for Christ. Amazing examples. And these were men in Oxford 500 years ago who gave up everything because they believed the gospel. The third of the Oxford martyrs was Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, an Anglican, the same as Latimer and Ridley. And he was tortured in prison pretty brutally. You can read of all that he had to endure. And then he was forced to watch his friend Ridley and Latimer be burned at the stake. And in that moment, under so much pressure, he recanted his faith. And he told them that he would turn away from the things that he was saying. But Mary I was pretty ruthless. And a year later in 1556, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer himself was burned. 
But on his day of execution, and here's a picture of it, do you notice something? What stands out for you in that picture? Yeah, brilliant. Here, Thomas Cranmer deliberately takes the hand which had signed the recantation saying he had given up trusting. And in repentance, knowing that this was a truth that deep down he did hold, but in a moment of weakness he recanted, he thrust his hand into the fire for that to be burned first. A public way of saying, I do trust in Jesus, and this hand that has sinned will be burned first. It's remarkable courage. But this was the Archbishop of Canterbury all those years ago. Now you can go to Oxford to the bottom of Magdalen Street just before you get to the shops to a place called St Giles and you see this it's called Martyr's Memorial well worth a visit if you've got children take them to teach them something of the history that's on our doorstep and this is Martyr's Memorial and you can see here the different figures of Latimer and round the corner Ridley and Cranmer they stand tall here and uh, here there's an inscription uh, which I took a photo of when I was there on Saturday last week having another look around Uh, and this is the inscription that you see on Martyr's Memorial I'll read it to us To the glory of God and in grateful commemoration of his servants, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugo Latimer of the Church of England, who near this spot yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths which they had affirmed and maintained against the errors of the Church of Rome, and rejoicing that uh, that to them it was given not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. This monument was erected by public subscription in the year of our Lord, 1843. The memorial's there at the bottom of Magdalen Street, but if you go just around the corner onto Broad Street, you'll see this on the road. And there's just cafes and shops lining this road here. Now the interesting thing and the really sad thing is I took that photograph last Saturday. I just stood by a cafe and took that picture. And you can see where all those people are, and they were walking from uh, left to right. What if they just walk straight over, completely oblivious? That there marks the site where these martyrs were burned in Oxford. And you can go and stand on it. And you are standing on the exact place where these three men were burned alive for their faith. And just in a moment of quiet, as I took that photo and reflected, how sad it was that these people were just walking over this street, completely oblivious to what was going on. Whilst I stood at Martyr's Memorial, taking the other picture... There was two um, semi-drunken students who walked past. One pointed out to the other, that's Martyr's Memorial. And then the other said something very rude, laughing at these Christians who had been burned. Probably not having any comprehension of what it represented and what these men had done. But you can go to Oxford and you can have a moment of quiet looking at this cross and remembering these three men. And perhaps as you look at that cross, it reminds you of the cross and all that Jesus Christ gave up on the cross for us and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together shortly remembering all that he gave up for us but here's the thing that's most remarkable about the Oxford martyrs it wasn't just their firm faith in Christ it wasn't the fact that they were prepared to be burned at the stake for what they believed was true for me the most significant thing was the context when they were doing this because for nearly 20 years from 1545 to 1563 there was an 8 year council going on in the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent it was called in northern Italy it was essentially a counter-reformation where the reformers stood up and upheld biblical truth the counter-reformation was going on during the Council of Trent and it was during the Council of Trent when these reformers stood forward and said no these are the truths we'll stand on 
Two of the biggest outcomes of the Council of Trent. One was the denial of the inspiration of scripture. It's just written by men. It's not inspired by God. Therefore, it's not that authoritative. That was the first denial. The second one was that the unwritten traditions of the church were of equal authority to the Bible. So you can take the authority of the church, whatever the church says, and you take scripture, and they just sit on a par. And these were the truths that were being uh, shared at the time. And so for these men to make a stand on the word of God alone, and on the faith that we find within, uh, the truths we find within the word of God alone, was hugely significant at the time. Because they were fighting against this counter-reformation that was trying to undermine the scriptures all the time. And why is that significant? Because as we looked at last week, isn't that exactly what's going on in our culture today? The word of God is being undermined all the time. And people are saying it's not inspired by God, it needs to be changed to fit modern trends so that the church is more approachable, so that more people have an interest in Jesus Christ. And the reality is, it's not going to lead more people to faith doing that. It might lead more people into churches, but there'll be churches that are not teaching truth. And so as you look at the Oxford martyrs and you look at the context in which they were fighting the battles they were and the context in which they gave up everything, what a wonderful inspiration for us today where similar battles need to be fought. And no doubt there'll be battles for us to fight, probably and perhaps not being burned at the stake. We've moved on, times are different. But we have our battles and we need to fight them. How can we keep our candle, as it were, burning to take the words of Latimer? Well, we need to be prayerful people. Uh, if you don't receive uh, anything through the post from someone like the Barnabas Trust or Open Doors, organizations that work amongst the persecuted church around the world, uh, get in touch with them and they can send you emails and stuff where you can just read about brothers and sisters around the world for whom they are losing life, like these Oxford martyrs, to stand with them in prayer for their stories to inspire us. If you're a parent, why don't you talk about persecution of Christians around the world with your children? Help them to recognize how hard it is for some people around the world and perhaps how hard it might get for them in their schools. Another thing I'd really urge you to do is pray for the Church of England. Because of the close connection between the Church of England and the state, this is often where some of the battles are fought first and then they filter down into other church denominations. The Church of England need prayer There are many faithful people still standing firm and keeping the candle alive in the Church of England. But that number is decreasing all the time. And the Church of England need our prayers. We need to pray for our friends down the road at St. Mary's. We need to pray for those who are faithful within that institution. Because there are so few these days who are faithful. And because of the close ties with the state, this is where many battles will be fought. Let's pray for our friends in the Church of England. And more locally, it's worth thinking, okay, I'm not going to necessarily be in a big public display of faith like the Oxford martyrs were. I'm not going to get burned at the stake. But I would say, often, it might just be those little winds of faithfulness where you can keep that candle burning where you work, where you live. Maybe those conversations around the dinner table or at a party or a wedding where you just want to keep quiet because it would be easier to, but you have an opportunity to be faithful and say something. Maybe it's sharing integrity in the workplace when you're the only person and it might cost you that promotion. Maybe it's that honesty in doing a tax return and not being greedy for the next pay rise when everyone around you is just running after these things. Maybe it's having a deep joy and robust trust in Christ despite suffering that says to a watching world, there's something else that gives you hope. 
just little wins of faithfulness, if we all are involved in them, could be our different ways we can hold up this candle and keep it alive today. And perhaps in our culture and perhaps in our generations, there will be times in this country where it gets harder and harder to be a Christian. But in those moments, because you live in Oxford, go to Oxford, think of the Oxford Masters, look at the cross on Broad Street and thank God for their faithfulness. And as you do that, let it remind you of the faithfulness of Christ who gave up everything for you and calls us to take up our cross to give up everything for him.